Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhina ustafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rasul wa khatimil anbiya wa ala alihi laskiya wa ashabihi latqiya amma ba'd. Alhamdulillah we've uh, completed 30-odd episodes um, in this series of ours covering the lives of the companions. Today we move forward and open up a new chapter, a new story. And this story doesn't just belong to one specific companion of the Prophet wasallam. it actually starts with the whole family. A family that lived in Yemen and came to Makkah Mukarramah. They came to look for one of their brothers that was lost. After spending some time looking for their family member, two of them returned back to Yemen, but one brother stayed behind because he really wanted to find his relative. Yasir radiallahu ta'ala an, in order to give himself some protection in the city of Mecca, established an alliance with a Meccan tribe by the name of Banu Makhzum. It was a tribal society. So if you wanted protection while you lived there, if you wanted your right, if you wanted justice, you had to have good allies. Banu Makhzum was, was an established tribe of Mecca. Yasir radiallahu an aligned himself with them. And later on, married a slave girl from that tribe by the name of Sumayya. Together they had a child whose name was Ammar. Ammar bin Yasir. They were a humble family. They lived in Mecca Mukarramah like everyone else did. And then they began to hear these whispers that there was a man by the name of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who claimed prophethood. This is in the earliest of the early days. Someone whispers here that there is a prophet, someone whispers there, there is a prophet. Ammar bin Yasir was this young man and he had this interest, this, this desire to learn more about the Prophet Muhammad So he begins to ask around, where can I find this prophet? Where can I learn more about this religion? Someone informs him, that these days the Prophet, peace be upon him, privately teaches the religion at Darul Arqam, in the house of 
the companion Arqam radiallahu an. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu an makes his way to Darul Arqam and he's standing outside and right there he meets another companion, Suhaib bin Sinan al-Rumi, someone whose biography we already covered in a previous episode. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu an asked him, what are you doing here? He didn't want to show his cards, didn't want the other person to know what's going on in case this individual was a foe and he decided to turn on him. So he asked him, what are you doing here? Suhaib radiallahu an was very bold and he said, I've come here to learn about the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and listen to what he has to say. Qala, Sa'amar bin Yasir radiallahu an responded, Wa ana uridu dalik. And I want the exact same thing. Fadakhalna alayhi. Both of them entered into the house of Arqam and they met Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam presented the religion to them. The simplicity of this religion, that there is one God, and that Muhammad peace be upon him is his messenger. The Qur'an is the final and last revelation. What Islam teaches, what are the teachings, what are, what's the code of ethic of this religion? And as they listen to the Prophet ﷺ, they're so drawn in that both of them in that gathering accepted Islam. They spent the rest of the day with Rasulullah ﷺ, and then they head out from there and now had to practice Islam like everyone else, secretly and privately. The ulama point out, the scholars point out that Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu awalu man masjidan fi baytihi. He was the first person to establish a prayer area in his home. Everyone else would pray outside somewhere or gather together in Darul Arqam. He was a person that dedicated a part of his home to worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now that, he, now that he becomes Muslim, he's interested in having this conversation with his mom and dad. Some historians say that originally he kept it a secret, didn't want his mom and dad to know. Later on they found out, they asked him, what's going on here? His mom was a freed slave, his father wasn't from Mecca, didn't have any notoriety within the city, so they were considered to be from the lower class of the people. And they said that, I, you know, I, he said I met this prophet and he taught, the, he taught this beautiful message, and the core of his message was that we are all equal. We don't serve anyone. The skin tone of ours doesn't matter, this pigmentation doesn't mean anything at all. We are all loyal servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And a person increases in their rank in this world and also in the hereafter based off of their virtue. You don't build yourself just by your possessions, by your skill, by your strength, by your knowledge. You build yourself based off of what kind of relationship you have with God, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What kind of person you are when you interact with other people. Your humility, your character. His parents were originally a little reluctant, but when they heard this pure message, and when they heard the message, the verses of the Qur'an, they were touched and they also became Muslim. The historians say, قِيلَ لَمْ يَسْلَمْ أَبَوَىٰ أَحَدٍ مِّنَ السَّابِقِينَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ سِوَىٰ عَمَّارِ وَأَبِي بَكْرِ That other than two companions, from the earlier ones that accepted Islam, there were no others whose both parents accepted Islam. From the earlier ones, most of them, some of them had a parent that accepted Islam, some of them had no parents accept Islam. Ammar bin Yasir's mother and father both accepted Islam. And the same thing happens with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an, 
whose parents, both mother and father, accepted Islam. So now you have a family in the early days of Islam that's a Muslim. They practice Islam privately, but however, when the Quraysh, after some years passed by and Islam became a little bit more popular, they began to view it as a threat. Because their entire political system was based off of a man-made hierarchy, that we are superior because we're Arabs. And not only that, these tribes are superior because they have victory in a particular battle. Or these people have notoriety because they were successful in a particular type of trade. Or leaders have come from these people. And now in comes Islam and says, everyone's equal. You're not born into royalty. You are who you are. What's your merit? What's your merit? What have you made of yourself? And they viewed this as a big threat. This meant that they would lose their respect. This meant that they would lose their position. When they saw Islam as an opponent, didn't spend any time listening to how simple and pure the message was, they turned against the Muslims. And they began to look for people that were vulnerable. The Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him وسلم, came from a great tribe. They couldn't just go and pick him out because his tribe's men were standing behind him. Abu Bakr Siddiq the second person to accept Islam you know, from outside of the family of the Prophet ﷺ, he was protected by his people. He was from another notable tribe, Banu Tayn. Khadija radiallahu anha, the Prophet's wife from us was, was from a notable tribe. Ali radiallahu anha, Ja'far radiallahu anha, they were from the same tribe of Rasulullah ﷺ. What the Meccans started to do was look for people that were weak, the slaves, they didn't have any tribe. Getting their masters and their leaders and the tribe that they were from a greater perspective, a part of, to turn against them would be easy. So each of these tribes that had respect, they began to push out the weak ones from them that had accepted Islam. And now there was this stage, this stadium that they had developed of torture. And each tribe wanted to prove how strong they were and how committed they were to the cause. The way they were going to do this was to torture their own and to get them to break. Whoever could get their slave, their ally to break, had proven that they were committed to this cause and they were strong, they were not weak. From the tribe of Banu Makhzum, the leader of the time was a wretched man by the name of Abu Jahl. He was one of the key opponents of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The Prophet ﷺ referred to him as the pharaoh of this ummah, of this nation. Abu Jahl began to look for the weak spot within his tribe and somewhere tucked away, he found this tribe, this family of Yasir. They weren't from the tribe, yet they were allies of the tribe. If they turned against them, and if they brought them out and began to torture them, who would protect them really? It's not like they had any blood relatives. They weren't slaves. The family was brought forth. On one side, you have a father who's tied up, and next to him is the mother, the husband and wife, and then before them is their child. Individual torture is one thing. When one person has to face a consequence for what they do, or for something they've been accused of. But when you collectively torture people, it takes it to a whole different level. If you read, um, you know like, even what's happening right now in Gaza, you read the stories of what's happening in Palestine right now, and you know, you see these fathers that return from burying their own children, mothers that return from burying their own children. You can see the pain that this person feels is far worse than death itself. Because they're not just enduring their pain, they're enduring the pain of a beloved. Someone walks away from the burial of their own mother or father, it's a little heavier. 
It's a little deeper. That pain hurts more. Sometimes a mother sees her child in pain and she says, God, why don't you test me instead of my child? Because that's what it means to, that's what happens when you love someone, right? And this family is brought together and their torture starts. The man who's dealing with them is a stubborn man. He is the most stubborn. He's as worse as it gets. Abu Jahl begins to torture them. And not only is he torturing them, but he does it in a very lewd, inappropriate, immoral manner. When he tortures Sumayya radiallahu anha, Ammar radiallahu an's mother, he doesn't just torture her, but he begins to read lewd lines of poetry, very inappropriate, trying to entice her while she's, in, while she's bound and he's whipping her and beating her under the scorching heat of Mecca while everyone is watching them to see what happens here. Yasir radiallahu anh is being tortured. Then he comes back to Ammar and tortures him and then heads over to this person, heads over to that person. The Muslims are very few in number. The Prophet ﷺ is still in the earliest of stages. You have his companion Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh by his side who is a man of wealth. And anytime he sees a person being tortured that is a slave, he intervenes. And he says to the master that why don't I purchase this slave from you? You won't have to worry about him being from your tribe anymore and torturing him anymore. He'll be my problem. Abu Bakr was a Muslim. He would use this tactic to purchase these slaves and as soon as he they would come into his possession, he would set them free. He would say, go and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as you will. And like this, he was setting everyone free. The issue here was, Yasir radiallahu anh's family, this entire family of Sumayya, Yasir, and their child, their child and their son Ammar, they were not slaves. They couldn't be bought out of slavery. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anh wasn't able to help them. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would look at them from the sidelines and he would see the pain they would go in, how difficult it was. Uthman bin Affan radiallahu anh narrates an incident. He says that, um, One day, Uthman says, I arrived with the Prophet ﷺ to this open land in Mecca where they were torturing the early Muslims. And we passed by Ammar عن, his mother and his father while they were being tortured. Yasir the father, he saw Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he said, This is what time has done to us. This is what our life is. This is where we are. فَقَالَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِسْبِرْ Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Prophet peace be upon him said, Be patient. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, O oh Allah, forgive the family of Yasir. And the companion, when he heard the Prophet say, Isbir, be patient, he said, قَدْ فَعَلْتْ O Messenger of Allah, I will be patient. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu an, he was being tortured. And the, the Quraysh would, uh, would, uh, um, would light a fire and bring him very close to the fire to torture him. عَذَّبَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ عَمَّارًا بِالنَّارِ وَكَانَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ يَمُرُّ بِهِ فَيُمِرُّ يَدَهُ عَلَى رَأْسِهِ the Prophet of Allah would take his hand and wipe it over the head of Ammar bin Yasir as he was being tortured. And he would say, Ya narukuni bardan wa salaman ala Ammar. O Allah, allow this fire to be peaceful and cool on Ammar. Kama kunti ala Ibrahim. O fire, just as you were cool and peaceful on Abraham, 
on Ibrahim السلام, similarly be cool and peaceful on Ammar. Ammar an's father and his mother were tortured so severely that ultimately his mother was killed. Abu Jahl, he took a spear and thrust it through her body, leaving her martyred. Not too long after that, her husband, Yasir an, out of weakness, also died. He was also a shaheed. The first person to be martyred in the history of Islam was this lady, Sumayya She was the first person. So every person after that day that has ever lost their life, every Muslim, no matter where in the world they are, that is tortured and feels that they have, done wrong, they have been wronged, they remember the story of Sumayya that lady who was challenged and who was tested and who was tortured. And her strength was such that she carried her purpose through right till the end. And she set a record, she set the lesson that Muslims don't give up. Muslims don't give up because things get a little hard. Muslims don't run away because someone is pushing them on, on their identity or someone's making them feel uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is okay because that's where growth actually happens. It's in that last rep, you know when you're on that 10th rep and everything's burning, when you push through, that's where growth actually is. Growth isn't in giving up early. So now this whole tradition of Muslims that follow and have lived over the last 1400 years, learned this lesson that you don't give up. Go to the life of people like Malcolm X, may Allah's mercy be upon him who continued to push. He knew he was gonna die. He knew that he was gonna be assassinated. But that didn't intimidate him. Because the man was robust, he was strong, he was well-read. His time in prison changed him. He read and saw the world now for what it actually was. And you go back, this whole tradition links back to this lady, Sumayya radiallahu anha, in the earliest days of Islam. The Prophet sallallahu is cheering them on with a soft, heavy voice. Sabran ya ala Yasir fa inna ma'idakum al-jannah. Be patient, O family of Yasir. Your promised abode is paradise. Just be strong. Hold in there. Ammar radiallahu anhu saw both his mom and dad be martyred, and he's the last one standing. And Abu Jahl is torturing him, and he keeps saying one thing. He says, "Say something foul against the Prophet." I want you to publicly humiliate him and then say something in favor of our idols that we worship. If you do this, I will stop the torture right away. Ammar bin Yasir after a tremendous amount of torture, caved in. And he said some statements about the Prophet that he wasn't proud of. Ibn Aoun narrates that the Prophet met Ammar, he saw Ammar sitting on the side and he was crying. The Prophet ﷺ sat down next to Ammar. يَمْسُحُ عَنْ عَيْنَيْهِ Wiping the tears from his eyes. And he said, the kuffar did to you what they did to you. They tortured you. So you gave them what they wanted to protect your life. If they do it again tomorrow, say the same thing again. Ammar bin Yasir was so hurt that he said something against the Prophet. Because from our perspective, this doesn't mean anything. Who cares? Like, who cares about religion in today's world? Who cares about God or messengers or revelation? We live in a pure material world. It's all about your goals, your objectives, your success. 
But for these people, they lived for a greater purpose. Ammar understood that the Prophet peace be upon him was his connection to the hereafter. The Prophet peace be upon him was the one that gave him confidence. He was the one that gave him strength. The Prophet peace be upon him was the one that was chosen by Allah for revelation. How much a Muslim loves the Prophet ﷺ is unimaginable to someone who doesn't believe in Allah and His Prophet. They'll never understand it. They'll never get it. The why is it that when a child is born, a mother holds her child up high and says, I'm going to name this one Muhammad. And that happens probably thousands of times every day. It's no coincidence that the name Muhammad is the most common name on the face of this earth and will be till the Day of Judgment. Because that love, it's very deep. It's love that social media can never buy. You know, in today's world, you can actually buy fame. But there is no fame that can match that of the Prophet ﷺ because his fame was universal, it lasted through history. Whether you went to Indonesia, whether you went to China, whether you went to the Middle East, in a time where people didn't have ships and they didn't have internet and they didn't have technology, that love of the Prophet ﷺ was placed in the hearts of mankind unlike any other faith or any other religion. Like any other faith or any other religion because that love is divine. Muslims have a special connection with the Prophet ﷺ. We don't exaggerate in that love to claim that the Prophet is the son of God, or he is a divine being, he is a human being. Yet we understand that he was a special human being. He was a human being in a human sense like all of us are, but he was special in the sense that he was the recipient of revelation. So when Ahmad bin Yasir an said one statement that seemed to defile the honor of the Prophet ﷺ, it was very heavy on him. And he found himself in tears, crying away, crying away. The Prophet ﷺ in one narration asked him, because he continued crying, he was in a lot of pain, that I don't know why I gave in. Other people were stronger, no one else gave in. How was I the first person to give in? The Prophet ﷺ asked him, كَيْفَ تَجِدُ قَلْبَكَ Yes, you said something about me. You said a foul thing about me. It's okay. You tell me, how does your heart feel? So he said, O Messenger of Allah, mutma'innum bil iman. I said a foul thing, but God knows how much I love you and how content my heart is with faith. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then said that Allah azawajal revealed the ayah, revealed the verse, that man kafara billahi min ba'di imanihi illa man ukriha wa qalbuhu mutma'innum bil iman. That if a person is coerced into saying a statement of disbelief, there is no harm in that as long as their heart itself is content with faith. And that's where he was. Anas radiallahu an narrates uh, from the Prophet, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who said, ثَلَاثَةٌ تَشْتَاقُ إِلَيْهِمُ الْجَنَّةُ There are three people that paradise desires. There are three people, تَشْتَاقُ الْجَنَّةُ تَشْتَاقُ إِلَيْهِمُ الْجَنَّةُ There are three people that paradise awaits. Aliyun wa Salmanun wa Ammarun. Ali radiallahu an, Salman radiallahu an, and Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu an. What is it about them that makes them different? What makes them so special that regarding them, the Prophet is saying that paradise desires them? It's because they lived a meaningful life. They lived a life that wasn't just about them. They lived a life greater than them. They lived a life full of legacy. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina Munawwara, 
when he arrived to the city of Medina. Actually, there's a difference of opinion among historians whether Ammar bin Yasir was with the group of people that migrated to Abyssinia in the fifth year after prophethood. The majority of the historians, Muslim historians, are of the position that he was not from that group. He remained with the Prophet ﷺ throughout all 13 years pre-migration in Mecca. And then, and then when the companions began to migrate from Mecca to Medina, he was in the earlier group of people that arrived in Medina to teach Islam. He was an expert of the Qur'an, so he would teach people the Qur'an. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Quba, right outside Medina, the companions and the Prophet ﷺ began to construct the very first masjid of Islam that was built by Muslims at the hands of Rasulullah ﷺ. So as the companions were building Masjid Quba, as they were building it, everyone was carrying one brick at a time. They would grab a brick, walk over, place it there. The next group of people would, you know, they would solidify that brick with some plaster and then they would do it again. Ammar bin Yasir was carrying two bricks at once. Everyone was carrying one. وَجَعَلَ عَمَّارُ بْنُ يَاسِرْ يَحْمِلُ لَبِنَتَيْنْ لَبِنَتَيْنْ Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa saw him. فَرَأَهُ النَّبِي sallallahu alayhi wa sallam The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa saw him. Why don't you just stick to carrying one brick? Why are you doing double the work? قَالَ إِنِّي أُرِيدُ الْأَجْرَ مِنَ اللَّهِ He said, I want double the reward from my God. I'm not happy with just a single. I need more in my life. I got that ambition, I have this desire that I want to be very close to my God and I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to see my struggle, I want Him to see my exhaustion for the sake of serving this religion and serving humanity. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Prophet peace be upon him then said, Ibn Sumayyata, linnasi ajrun walaka ajran. O son of Sumayya, people today will walk away with one reward and you shall take two. وَآخِرُ زَادِكَ شَرْبَةٌ مِنْ لَبْنٍ The last thing you will drink in your life will be a sip of milk. This is a prophecy. This is a very important prophecy. وَتَقْتُلُكَ الْفِئَةُ الْبَاغِيَةُ And you will be killed by the rebellious group. Nabi wasallam told him the final moments of his life. This riwayah, this statement where the Prophet wasallam said to Ammar bin Yasir, تَقْتُلُكَ فِئَةُ الْبَاغِيَةُ That you will be killed by the rebellious group, was heard by so many companions. So many people heard the Prophet saying this to him at different points. Imam Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi in his, his, in his biographical work, Seer Alam al claims, he says, that this statement is actually mutawatir. Like it's narrated, narrated so abundantly by so many people that it, it is inconceivable that this statement has any falsehood in it at all. Ammar bin Yasir an is a close companion of the Prophet, peace be upon him. He is with the Prophet of Allah in, during all 10 years of Medina. 13 years in Mecca, 10 years in Medina. All 23 years of prophethood, he is by the side of the Prophet He participates by the side of the Prophet of Allah in all the major battles, Badr, Uhud, Khandaq, he's there. And he begins to study and learn from the Prophet of Allah. Some of the narrations that he narrates from the Prophet Ammar bin Yasir says, I heard the Prophet of Allah saying, مَنْ كَانَ ذَا لِسَانَيْنِ فِي الدُّنْيَا كَانَ لَهُ لِسَانَانِ مِنْ نَارِ Whoever is two-tongued in the world, meaning two-faced, in front of one group of people, that person has one persona, and in front of another group of people, a totally different person. 
One thing is that you do, you carry different personalities and different personas because you're respecting the group of people that you're with. Like there's a person who has a corporate job and they act a particular way and then when they go back home, they're more chilled because they're with family. That's okay. That's called being professional. But then there's one side of you sitting in front of your own father or your mother and in front of them you're smiling and then the moment they turn around, you're with your friends and you say something very ill about your mom and dad. That's hypocrisy. That's what we call lisanani. مَنْ كَانَ ذَا لِسَانَانِ فِي الدُّنْيَا The Prophet ﷺ says, whoever is two-faced or two-tongued in the world, كَانَ لَهُ لِسَانَانِ مِنْ نَارِ will be punished with two tongues in, made of fire in the hereafter. Ahmad bin Yasir narrates in one example, in one narration, he says, the example of good companions, the example, مَثَلُ الْجَلِيسِ الصَّالِحِ مَثَلُ الْعَطَّارِ The parallel, the parable, of having good companions in this world is like being in a fragrance shop. Even if you don't apply any fragrance to yourself, when you walk out, you smell better. That's the benefit of being in the masjid. That's the benefit of attending these halaqahs. That's the benefit of going to the masjid for Jummah prayer. That when you go to the mosque, or when you go to a place of worship, when you're surrounded by righteous people, when you sit by students of knowledge, even if you leave without taking a single note, without writing down a single word, you walk out spiritually uplifted. There's a little bit of a change that happens. Today we were reading uh, the works of Imam Ghazali with the students. And Ibn Qudama in his mukhtasar of it, he actually writes something beautiful. He says, the exa- you know, when you are with righteous people, or when you read about righteous people, religious people, people who, you know, when you think of a religious person, you would assume that it's someone who had no worldly ambitions, probably someone who didn't have a job, lived in a cave, maybe spent his life with rosemary beads. That's not what it is. Not, that's not how we do it as Muslims. In Islam, we're taught to balance our lives. In Islam, we're taught that you dedicate yourself to your family. You work a little. You take care of your people. You know, financially be strong. Never ask anyone. Don't be dependent on other people. Yet at the same time, make sure every day you dedicate some time to your own spiritual growth. Dedicate time to your spiritual health. Dedicate time to worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a very balanced approach. One thing that I always say to students is, if you want to understand what kind of balance the Prophet had in his life, the Prophet after receiving the very first revelation, he finds himself in the arms of his wife Khadija radiallahu anha, who embraces him and brings him comfort. That's what family is to the Prophet. That after that first revelation, while he's overwhelmed, his wife Khadija radiallahu anha is the first person that he goes to. Out of all the people, many of us would go to our friend or go to a social gathering. He's so overwhelmed, the first person he goes to is family. Because that's what family is, that everyone will leave you. People will get bored of you. People will get tired of you. But family is that one place that if you actually have people who love you and have that bond and care for you and respect you, no matter where you go in the world, when you come back, they will be waiting with their doors open. That's family. And when the Prophet, peace be upon him, is passing away while he's breathing his last, as he you know, prepares for his transition from this world and to face death, the last place where you see him is he lies in the lap of his wife Aisha radiallahu anha, who nurses him and you know, she's wiping water over his forehead and is applying medication to him and taking care of him. Uh, and he finds himself very comfortable there. Ahmad bin Yasir an, he narrates in this, you know, like the, the example of a good friend is like being in a fragrance shop. 
You're around good people and they benefit you. Islam is about living a balanced life. And Imam Ghazali, he writes that the reason why in Islam we have such an emphasis on being around good people, and the reason why the scholars say, that at the mention of righteous people, their mercy from God descends. Because when you read about righteous people, when you sit with righteous people, there is a new world that opens up to you. You begin to develop an ambition. You see someone who reads Quran every day, you probably read no Quran and you think to yourself, man, it wouldn't be bad to read some Quran. I'd like to increase in my recitation of the Quran. I see someone doing dhikr, remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think to myself, I don't do that. That guy does it. If that guy can do it, I can do it. It's like a person who goes to the gym. You work out, you're as good as your workout partner is. It's like when you, when, when you, when, if your person wrestles or if they, if they have any sort of you know, grappling a part of their life or you, or you spar with someone, you're as good as your partner is. You get stuck with the person that isn't, that isn't pushing you, you're not going to reach your limits. And when you're around people who are kind of trying to walk both lives, where in the world they want to be successful, as the Qur'an teaches us to be, رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً And they're also trying to be successful in terms of their hereafter, وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَةً Then you end up finding great growth. And he says, Ghazali says that that ambition that comes into existence is تَنزِلُ الرَّحْمَةً That is the mercy of God descending. So always read the stories of the prophets. Read the stories of the companions. When you hear these, these incidents from their lives, it motivates you, it encourages you that if this person can do it, so can I. Um, in another narration, Ammar bin Yasir narrates that, um, that a person came to him and he said that I've never faced any difficulty in my life. So Ammar bin Yasir said, you're not one of us because we've all struggled in life. You know, the average person has got through a, gone through a lot in life. Everyone has their own story. Everyone has their own talk, their own walk. Someone's gone through a divorce. Someone's gone through, you know, loss of child. Someone's gone through loss of a parent. Some people are just struggling to find companionship and love in life. Some people have health issues. Everyone go, so Ahmad bin Yasir when that guy says, I've never gone through any difficulty in life, he says, Lasta minna, you're not one of us, because we are a people that are very comfortable with going through struggles. I heard the Prophet, peace be upon him, saying that when a believer is tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a believer goes through difficulty in life, and in that moment, rather than just pushing through the motions, the believer aligns their intention and reminds himself that, you know, no matter how hard things are, my Allah is with me. People can't hear what I'm going through. Nobody knows. People are standing here judging me. But Allah knows what's in my heart. Allah knows my challenges. Allah knows where I am in my life. Allah knows of my struggles. No one needs to be perfect, right? There, again, there's this assumption, right? That in order to be religious, I need to be perfect. No one needs to be perfect. You just need to be honest and sincere with yourself. That's where religion comes into place. That you're honest with yourself. That this is where I am in my life. This is where I need to grow. These are my weak points in life. Right? So he says, the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah He allows the sins of a person to fall off the individual that is tested just as leaves fall off of a tree. In one narration, Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anh narrates as narrated by Abu Shaykh al-Asbahani. Um, this narration is narrated by Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi in his famous book, Jalaul Afham, uh, Fi Fadl al-Salati ala Muhammad khayr al-Anam. 
So in that book, he narrates that Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anh said that Nabi sallallahu I heard um, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, إِنَّ لِلَّهِ مَلَكًا أَعْطَاهُ أَسْمَعَ الْخَلَائِقِ That Allah has appointed an angel فَهُوَ قَائِمٌ عَلَىٰ قَبْرِي إِذَا مِتُّ Who stands at the grave of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And any time, لَيْسَ أَحَدٌ يُصَلِّ عَلَيَّ صَلَاةً إِلَّا قَالَ يَا مُحَمَّدْ صَلَّ عَلَيْكَ فُلَانُ بْنُ فُلَانٍ That any time anyone sends salawat or salutations upon the Prophet, that angel conveys it to the Prophet. That so-and-so, the son of so-and-so gave you salam. Um, so in response, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends 10 salawat upon that individual. So there is, a, there is an angel that conveys the salam of the ummah to me. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu once said, Death is the best reminder. You know, it's, obviously death is, no one wants to talk about that. So morbid, so dark, why so sad? No one wants to talk about death. But when you drive past a graveyard, the reality hits you that these were the people that were strong and healthy and these were the people that ruled the world 50 years ago, 100 years ago. 150 years from now, not one person in this gathering is going to be alive. As much as that sucks, it's the truth. Not one person in this gathering is going to be alive 100 years, 50 years from now. It's going to be a whole different group of people here. And it's going to continue. This has been happening for thousands of years and it's going to go on. So Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anh, his statement is, Death is the best reminder. It's a reminder that whatever material you have will disappear. Your wealth will belong to someone else. Your house will be someone else's. Your car will be someone else's. What actually stays with you, and that's the second part, is your conviction and belief in God. That's what's going to be with you. When you go to your grave, your wealth will be left behind, and the angels will come and ask you, who was your Lord? Who was your prophet? What was your faith? Reality hits you. And if a person is unoccupied, why not use that time bil-ibadah to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anh says that one day the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to visit him while he had a severe fever. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, أَلَا أُعَلِّمُكَ رُقِيَةً رَقَّانِي بِهَا جِبْرِيلَ alayhi salam. Should I not teach you a few statements to say that Angel Jibreel said to me when I was sick? He said, a Messenger of Allah, of course, teach me. What should I say when I'm not feeling well? This is the perfect time to learn this prayer because everyone's under the flu these days. Like everyone's sick. Um, the Prophet, peace be upon him, taught him this very simple statement. In the name of God, do I seek cure for you? God is the one that cures. From all ailment that you face. That every difficulty that you face, turn to God and ask Him for cure. And that cure can come in any form. For some person it comes in one form, for another person it comes in another form. There is, you know, like, and I've talked about this before. You know, you, you study history, and you study the history of the world, and you study medicine, and different cultures have different ways of medicating their ill. You know, they have different ways of doing it. Today what works for people in the form of Tylenol and Advil, people have their own ways of dealing with painkillers in the past. It was one herb or another. They had one thing working for them, another thing working for them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows cure to exist in different remedies. But ultimately, the one that allows that cure to work is Allah That's the Muslim belief, right? That I can take all the medicine I want, but if God doesn't allow that medicine to take effect, it's not going to do anything. And no illness can harm me unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows that illness to do what it intends to do. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anh was once seen 
His son, Muhammad, he narrates that I saw my father praying six raka'at after Maghrib. رَأَيْتُ عَمَّارَ بْنَ يَاسِرٍ عَمَّارَ بْنَ يَاسِرٍ يُصَلِّي بَعْدَ الْمَغْرِبِ سِتَّ رَكَعَاتٍ قَالَ And when I saw him pray, I asked him, you know, what were you praying? So he said, رَأَيْتُ حَبِيبِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمُ I saw my beloved Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمُ praying six raka'at after Maghrib. And then the Prophet said, whoever prays six raka'at after Maghrib, Allah will forgive all of their sins, even if it is equivalent to the froth of the ocean. This is that Salat al-Awabin. Later on in his life, uh, he was appointed as a governor of Kufa. Ahmad bin Yasir radiallahu anhu was. This happened after Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas radiallahu anhu was demoted. And the Ahl Kufati shakaw Sa'adan fa'akthar fa'azalahu wa walla Ammar ibn Yasir al-Kufa. There were complaints filed against Sa'ad radiallahu anhu to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. A lot of accusations, it's a whole story of its own. So Umar radiallahu anhu, in order to, um, to create stability in that region, he then brought in Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu. And Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu, uh, he, he, he was there for quite some time. While he was there, he would lead the Jumu'ah prayer. Ibn Masood radiallahu anhu would give, uh, you know, give, give talks, but the actual Jumu'ah khutbah and the prayer was led by Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu, because they were both in Kufa. And Abdullah ibn Umar kana yakhtubu kulla khamisan wa yada'u al-khutbah al-jumu'ah lil-amir wa huwa Ammar. Ammar radiallahu anhu would lead it. In one narration, كَانَ عَمَّارَ عَلَيْنَا سَنَةً يَخْتُبُنَا فِي كُلِّ جُمْعَةٍ فِيهِ عِمَامَةٌ سَوْدَاءٍ فِي عِمَامَةٌ سَوْدَاءٍ When he would deliver his sermon, he would put on a black turban. That was his sort of look when he would deliver his sermon. He was someone that didn't speak much. Long silences. And if you paid attention to what he would be whispering while sitting alone, أَعِذٌ بِالرَّحْمَانِ مِنْ فِتْنَةٍ He would be saying the statement that I seek protection from God from any sort of calamity or trial. A'idhun bil-Rahman min al-Fitna. A'idhun bil-Rahman min al-Fitna. However, later on in his life, he was also replaced as the governor by Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu So someone, so Umar radiallahu asked Ammar later on, that were you upset when I removed you from the position? Qala Umar li-Ammar, asa'aka azluna iyaka. So Ammar radiallahu an said, I was more hurt the day you appointed me. I was a little sad that you removed me, but actually the day you appointed me, I felt so much pressure. There was so much responsibility placed on me that actually that day was more rough than the day you removed me. We'll jump to the end of his life. During the Khilafah of Ali radiallahu an, there was a uh, fitna that occurred uh, which resulted in Muawiyah radiallahu anh facing off against Ali radiallahu anh. And the battle that ensued was referred to as the Battle of Safin. Ammar radiallahu anh was on the side of Ali radiallahu anh. And one day he said to one of his companions, bring me some milk. And his companion brought him milk. فَشَرِبَ ثُمَّ قَالَ he drank from the milk and said, I remember the day the Prophet of Allah said to me, That the last thing that you will consume in your worldly life will be milk. I just drank that now. I've lived enough in this world. He was 93 years old, very old. I've lived too much in this world. 
Today is the day that I will be martyred. He then pushed forward in the battlefield. One of his uh, students and son, he narrates that right before he went into the battlefield, I heard him say, that the paradise and the gardens of paradise have come close. It's time for me to enter them. Today I shall reunite with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He then entered into the battlefield and he was struck. And when they removed the helmet from his head, they saw it was Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu. Ali radiallahu anhu was the one who performed his funeral prayer. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu was a great companion of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and a man of great honor, dignity, who wasn't afraid of sacrifice, who was a bearer of the torch of light. People turned to him in times of in times of darkness. Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu was strong-willed. Yet, one thing beautiful about his story is that when things got hard, and he said something against the Prophet ﷺ, as hard as it was for him at that moment, like I look at the story in that specific moment in his life as a moment of weakness. That weakness is a result of humanity, of being a human being. It's not weakness that adds any stain to him. It's a weakness that, are, that we have as human beings, but we turn to his story to see that that weakness didn't define him. He became something stronger. His shahada wasn't written the day that his mother and father received their shahada. His martyrdom wasn't written that day. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had written martyrdom for that entire family. But his was to come later. After learning this hadith from Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, after being such a great teacher and mentor for the ummah, and ultimately fighting by the side of his dear beloved companions. May Allah Azza wa Jalla allow us to benefit and learn from the example of these great companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and allow us to be resurrected in their ranks. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.